In 2017, the Barna Group published a list of the most post-Christian cities in America. Post-Christians. To qualify as a post-Christian, you had to meet nine or more factors of a long list that included things like do not believe in God, identify as an atheist or agnostic, uh, disagree that faith is important in your life, disagree that the Bible is accurate, agree that Jesus committed sins, do not feel any responsibility to share my faith, and not born again. And then there was a list of others. I'm just not going to take the time to read all of those. Number one, post-Christian city in America, Portland, Maine. Number two, Boston. Now, with the existence of some Christian institutions and schools, denominational headquarters, would it be surprising to you that our own Queen City is in the top 100 of post-Christian cities? Springfield is number 84. Having been involved in a segment of higher education in the past 18 years, a pastor for 30 years, I think that observation coincides with what I have seen. Now, perhaps you and I could agree that uh, there is much adjusting that needs to be done with the Christian group think. <laughs> However, despite how dire that may seem initially, I want to suggest that the opportunities for the gospel are greater now more than ever, that the needs of human beings are more acute, particularly when the facade of religion is taken off. And I think what we're seeing is the emperor has no clothes. And in this polarized season of politics, pandemic, race, the church, in the glory of the gospel, is given a wonderful opportunity to shine. That's our challenge. So with that as kind of a practical way to apply what we're going to read here, we see this severe verdict that God delivered in the book of Hosea to Israel. And I think what this does, it, it causes us to look in the mirror at our own spiritual fitness. Now, yes, Israel was a theocracy. So not everything that we read can apply to us. But it does not take, I think, a, an exceptional theologian to come away with asking ourselves some honest questions especially about the state of the church as a nation, the state of our church. Now, if there's one thing that kind of capsulizes what this book is about and what the state of Israel was, it would be this word, syncretism. Syncretism. That's not a word that was used in Hosea, but I think it's a word that describes what was going on. They were devoted to Baal worship while calling themselves the people of Yahweh. They observed Jewish festivals and ceremonies while having a loyalty 
to multiple gods. And as the years went by, they depended more on Baal than they did to Jehovah God. The worship of the Canaanite gods along with Yahweh became firmly entrenched. And Baal worship became prominent in the northern kingdom of Israel and later infiltrated the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. The predominantly urban Phoenicians built temples to Baal. Places of worship of Baal were often high places in the hills, consisting of an altar, a sacred tree, a stone, a pillar. And Baal's sphere of influence included seeking the idol's approval for things like agriculture, animal farming, and human fertility. Practices included animal sacrifices, convorting with temple prostitutes, and in some cases, even human sacrifices, if you wanted some special favor from another god. Now, you may have seen pictures in the past of Baal. has a form of a man, but the head of a bull with horns. Often portrayed seating on a throne, the king of all the other gods. And when the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a a, a land of farmers whose land was fertile beyond anything that the Hebrews had ever seen. And the Canaanites attributed their abundance to Baal. And this is where the Israelites' problems accelerated. Could the God who had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness also provide fertile farms in the promised land? Or would the fertility God of Canaan have to be honored? And maybe to be safe, we'll worship both. That's syncretism. Now, we've already looked at Hosea 1 and the call of God to have Hosea marry a woman who was an adulteress and have children who followed her. This familial relationship would serve as a backdrop to the struggle God has with Israel and their attempt to syncretize idol worship and being a covenant people of Yahweh. And I think we're going to miss the force of this book unless we kind of understand the pathos of being a spouse whose marriage partner constantly cheats on him or her and does not love you. You get a little bit of a feeling then of the tension, the grief, the frustration, the anger mixed with pain that a attempts to then reach out to your spouse, and in this case, a wife by the name of Gomer. That should have been a sin in itself to have a name such as Gomer. (laughs) Being Hosea's wayward wife and Israel being God's wayward bride. Verse one, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. After reading through chapter one that proclaimed this rupture of the Mosaic covenant, uh, we read the words in verse nine of chapter one, you are not my people 
and I will not be your God. And now we see God playing on those names of the children, and he's now proclaiming, you are my people, and I am your God. You have these warring desires creating a tension of being a committed faithful spouse and in one who is not. And we have to look at this through, I think, a theological lens to understand two different covenants going on here. At least this is part of it. You have the Mosaic Covenant that included two parties between God and the people of Israel in a covenant with God. I will bless you if you do this. You will receive curses if you disobey me. And then another covenant, the covenant of Abraham, that had one party, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant had two parties, God and the people of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, only one party, only one is responsible to keep that promise, and that is God. And by the way, when our salvation is talked about in view of a covenant, guess which covenant is chosen? The Abrahamic covenant. So our salvation is based upon the promise of God to us, one party. Galatians talks about this. And so what you have here is you have Israel breaking the Mosaic covenant, but then God also making this covenant with Abraham that I'm going to continue to love my people. And he promises to faithfully bless his people and provide for them. Now, God cannot fundamentally change his character. He's not going to change his holiness. He's also not going to change his grace and love toward his people. And so we praise him for what theologians call immutability. It's that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So the wife continues to commit adultery, and the children are called to hold her accountable, to denounce her actions, whoring from her face. It's likely a reference to jewelry, like a nose ring or a, a necklace or pendant that you could see between her breasts. It adorned her during her adultery. The jewelry were likely replicas or related to the shrines or idols of Baal. And saying that the children must plead with their mother, Hosea is calling for the children to set themselves apart from their mother, to hold her accountable so that they don't suffer the same fate as she does. And by her unfaithful behavior, Gomer, for all practical purposes, has no relationship with Hosea. Completely has turned her back upon him. And the implications for Israel are obvious. The mother and wife is the northern kingdom of Israel. The children are the people of Israel. 
And God is inviting a remnant of the kingdom to hold the nation accountable to stop with their idol worship. Israel was guilty of worshiping gods of pagan nations around them, especially Baal. Whenever there was a drought or famine in the land, the Jews repeatedly turned to Baal to help them instead of Jehovah. And this pagan worship involved sensual fertility rites where both male and female prostitutes were used. Isn't it interesting that idol worship or false teaching always has some kind of, it seems, sexual deviation attached to it? And that's true even today. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. To be stripped means that the full consequences of her sin will be noticed without the protection of family. She'll be open to shame, treated with the, like I said, the full extent of sin. Living under the notice of a holy God in his moral universe when you are supposed to be a holy nation, a holy people. And it's folly for any of us to think that we can live outside of God's reach, outside of his moral universe, outside of his omniscience, to be in the wilderness in parched land, killing her thirst means that she will be incapable of producing life. She is cavorting with a fertility God, but her reproduction will be cut off by the true God. Never getting her real need met, the thirst for sex will consume her, but never being satisfied. And again, the implication of Israel is it too will be deprived of basic sustenance like water. It's land made into a wilderness instead of a a fertile property for sustenance. And God will leave the people to their fate and the land will revert to wilderness. I think at any point in this book, we have to remind ourselves that whether in the Old Testament or New, some things never change. Here's one. God does not cease judging sin. When his people sin today, God is free to distribute consequences as he sees fit. Let me give you some examples in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to God in Acts 5. Herod Agrippa was visited by an angel and eaten by worms in Acts 12. Paul says in some cases of immorality, where there was a man that was having sex with his stepmother, Paul was saying, there are some in your midst who have died, who have met a premature death because this sin had gone unchecked. And we're told by Paul, the church leader, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
It is the definition of mocking God for Christians to think that they can defy the word of God, defy God's moral order, plain injunctions, and nothing's going to happen. Hebrews 12.6 warns us, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, certainly, there is punishment for our sin, past, present, and future, that is put on Christ and does not change our eternal destiny. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant applies to us. But continued sin will be dealt with by God, as we've seen the examples that I have mentioned. When our kids are in our house, I love them. That is continual. Nothing can change that. But if they were to continue with some kind of rebellion, they will face consequences. And did. We tried to be consistent with that as best we could. We want them to understand that when that happens in the home, you can expect that to happen with God outside of our home. Verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. Some are asking, is this in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, it really is. The children of Gomer and by extension the people of Israel will also be judged because they had lost connection with what it meant to be keepers of the covenant. Their mother had taught them nothing but greed, immorality, and idolatry. Now, will God save individuals who repent? Absolutely. However, the people as a whole followed in the footsteps of their leaders who were idol worshipers. It strikes me that there's a a sense, I think, for some here as they read a passage like this, there's a sense of harshness with this kind of language about judgment. We feel as if it's not fair And it's certainly not to our liking, you know, as if God is to write his word and operate to our liking. And I will certainly agree that in in our natural human desires, you know, talk of judgment seems discordant. I mean, naturally, we want love, grace, acceptance, and we want to be graded on a curve, right? Little sin here, little sin there. No problem. I'm definitely not like those people over there. That's what we normally think. And we have a a tendency to see the, the gravity of our sin as less than it is before a holy God. I mean, listen, you could look at it this way. If there if there's a man who says, you know what, I am 90% faithful to my wife. Hmm. What would you consider him? Unfaithful. Right? This is what Israel did with God. God, Israel forsook God. And we we can look at the church, we can say that the church is tempted to turn to a world system that hates God, wants nothing to do with God. And we can take on the thinking of that world system and how we approach certain things like, let's say, the poor, sexual sin, race, money, a host of other things. And we get sucked into more of a kind of progressive view 
by following our own foolishness to supersede the word of God that now we deem is in great error. And we begin to synchronize this devious system with Christianity. And before long, we, like Israel, are barely recognizable as the people of God. That's a danger for us. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them as acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Gomer has certainly played the part of a whore with uh, multiple partners. She's acted with little shame and she's done so in exchange for daily sustenance that she gets. Hammurabi's code and the Middle Assyrian law code contain items that a husband by law should provide for his, uh, his wife, which included these items that are mentioned. Grain, oil, wood, clothing, and these formed the basis of the economy in the ancient Near East. Gomer had these, but she thanked Baal for these things. And this was gross ingratitude and idolatry. And Moses told the Israelites from the beginning what the arrangement was in this covenant that bore his name. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Deuteronomy 11. God released Israel from the bondage of Egypt. God freed her and brought her to a promised land only to have her spurn him and love other gods who were powerless before him. Idolatry. And then to have the gall to say, we're the people of God. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than now. Don't think she has repented. She just misses her stuff, okay? Like a wayward spouse who comes to his or her senses after going after riches, becoming engrossed in sexual partners. Israel will come to an end of itself and begin to want what she had with God. 
but God deprives the nation of its false God, deprives the nation of its prosperity, it erroneously attributed to Baal. This is not repentance. It's merely saying, I had it better off when I followed God. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. All the goods that Jehovah God provided for Israel were used in making offerings to Baal. It would be like a husband buying his wife a lavish gift, and she gives the gift to her adulterous partner. It has her husband's name engraved on the gift. And it has words of affection given to her. She gives it away. Understand, Israel does not love God. It merely realizes God is the one that provided her some things that she misses. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. So the husband strips away the gifts he gave his bride and sends her away. You know what? Let her lovers take care of her. No one respects this woman enough to protect her from the public shame. And maybe that's one way to realize that God has been good to you is to go without. You realize your need, and you know only God can sustain you. You know, I think we have to watch this in terms of our thankfulness, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving. You know, it's easy to say, you know what? I'm so thankful that you know, that I was able to work hard and have all this money to buy this house and to get this card. I'm so thankful that my wife and I have these children. I'm so thankful, you know, for all the good things I've been able to provide my wife and so thankful. And it comes off as a a real form of pride because who have we left out? It's God who gives me life, who gives me breath. It's God who's given me the ability to work and to earn whatever it is I earn. And it's God who deserves the ultimate thanks for all of it. But they forgot God. And we often can forget God and put the focus on ourselves. The announcement in Hosea 2.9 revealed the Lord's intention to implement the covenant curses against Israel. Drought, blight, invading armies would destroy the land's produce and this would be seen by all the other idol worshipers. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast of the Baals when she burned offerings to them 
and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. It is a scathing rebuke. God will bring cessation to Israel's religious celebrations. Quit this sham of acting like you have a relationship with me. Going to church, you are a fool. And I'm not fooled by your hypocrisy. These feasts had been corrupted by Baal worship, were no longer desired by the Lord. And the promised land reverts to a chaotic state. Instead of vines and trees yielding fruit to the Israelites, becomes overgrown food for animals. Israel was enthusiastic in its pursuit of Baal. She burned incense to the fertility deity. She adorned herself with rings and jewels as dress for Baal worship. And going after her lovers, Israel wanted to get involved with other nations and their gods. And in doing this, Israel forgot God. So the message for us today is not to become like Israel and synchronize a cultural idol or mindset into our Christianity. This is a warning to all of us who call ourselves the people of God. You know, a church may have in the past preached the word of God, committed to honoring God with holy lives. But now they just have trappings of songs, get-togethers, social causes, but they have lost confidence in the word of God. They start accepting alternative lifestyles and they worship at the idol of self and comfort and even sexual pleasure. And in doing this, we can believe that our religious devotion is real. At the same time that we despise God's instructions and we live as we wish with no real intention of loving God with obedience. What has replaced this thing for so-called Christians? What has replaced God? New York Times columnist Ross Dovey claims that if there's a representative religious pilgrim for our post-Christian times, it's probably Elizabeth Gilbert. In 2001, at age 32, Gilbert had a rewarding job as a travel writer, an apartment in Manhattan, a big new house in the Hudson Valley, and a devoted husband with whom she intended to have a child. Just five short years later, her spiritual odyssey began at 3 a.m. with Gilbert locked in the bathroom of her home, weeping over the life she didn't want anymore, and then falling on her knees in prayer. Culturally, she was some sort of Christian, although she could never swallow the idea that Christ is the only path to God. So that night, she addressed the divine as God and he 
Why she also kept in mind to whoever might be listening, the universe, the great void, the force, the supreme self, the whole, the creator, the light, the higher power. And her prayer was a simple plea. I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to live in this big house, and I don't want to have this baby. And at long last, someone spoke back, writes Dalphi. Gilbert said it was not an Old Testament Hollywood Charlton Heston voice, nor was it a voice telling me I must build a baseball field in my backyard. See, I know this is going evil when you dog feel the dreams. That's just not right. (laughs) It was merely my own voice speaking from within my own self. And yet, this was my voice as I had never heard it before. This was my voice, but perfectly wise, calm, and compassionate. This is what my voice would sound like if I'd only ever experienced love and certainty in my life. How can I describe the warmth of affection in that voice as it gave me the answer that would forever seal my faith in the divine? Fortified by this religious conversation, she left the husband and the house and the plans for having kids, left it all behind and set out into the unknown. And she started her globe-trotting spiritual quest that led to the publishing phenomenon known as Eat, Pray, Love, a book that spent 187 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was turned into a movie with Julia Roberts. But Gilbert's voice isn't unique. The New York Times columnist writes, the message of Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love is the same gospel preached by a cavalcade of contemporary gurus, teachers, and would-be holy men and women. It's a religion of God within, and it's summed up by Gilbert herself when she writes, God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. Somewhere within us, there does exist a supreme self who is eternally at peace. And according to Gilbert, Her highest duty is to honor the divinity that resides within me, end quote. That, my friends, is making an idol of self. That is an example of a Baal within our culture. That doesn't mean we don't have compassion for her, because we do, because there's deception in that. She's not the enemy. She's a victim of the enemy and the world system. Listen, self is not the solution. Self is part of the problem. And the gospel provides us freedom from worshiping self. That puts us in bondage. And why does it put us in bondage? Because we keep looking within for something that self will never satisfy, so we're on the hamster wheel. And we keep with these bondages to try to satisfy ourselves, never to find it. And it's bondage, it's addiction. And the gospel frees us from all of that. 
and helps us to be in relationship with a God who fills our souls as we worship him, as we follow him, as we learn not to spurn his goodness, but to thank him daily. And there's freedom in this. And this is what God wants us to enjoy. No matter the type of car you drive, the house you live in, whether you're married or not, none of that really matters in terms of our relationship with God and the ability to have our hearts filled. And so I offer you today not a synchronistic life where we call ourselves Christian and live by another creed, but a life completely devoted to Christ and his word and know that in that there is great freedom. There's probably not a Christian in here who's lived a significant period of time that can't attest that when you try to mix your Christianity with self or some other idol, there's a lot of frustration, tension. There's a lot of stuff that Gomer experienced. And I could say the same. 